0: You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it seems like villainous doctors always seem to attack our Emerald Hero right around Christmas time. all-new, all-Christmassy, all-green episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of the most holly-jolly characters ever to be created in the DC universe. Yep, it's Christmas time again, and... As usual in Christmas time in the books, we get a bunch of beatdown with a bunch of property damage. It's DC, folks. That's bound to happen. In the Green Lantern book, we get another villain from Green Lantern's past. Unfortunately, this is Kyle Rayner Green Lantern we're talking about, so he has no idea who the heck this guy in this purple suit who has magnetic powers is. For all we know, it could be Magneto, but actually it's Dr. Polaris. Come back from wherever to menace the new Green Lantern. Of course, we also get another person in purple over in the Guy Gardner issue. That person, however, is major force, and though he's partially dressed in the familiar purple garb of the holiday season, he is not really bringing in very many presents that you would want to open, especially presents that might be lying around in Guy Gardner's mom's refrigerator. Last issue, if you remember, there was a scene eerily reminiscent of what happened in the dreaded Women Refrigerators Refrigerators episode of Green Lantern. So you can imagine, guys not going to be too happy about this. But the carnage and the Christmas frivolity begins right after I get to playing a couple of promos for some of my favorite podcasts around. So stick around and after the podcast promos, we'll be right back with my coverage of Green Lantern number 59. Mr. Scott, shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir.
1: I... Before this drama unfolds, we give welcome to the ones named Kirk and Spock. You! What planet is this? Which one of you is the captain we violate the treaty, Captain. Sir,
0: someone is stealing the Enterprise.
1: What are you scratching at? <laughs> Humans make illogical decisions. Disgract
0: sequence completed and engaged. No!
1: Oh, Mrs. Spock, I'm talking to Mrs. Spock, you understand? Starfleet, do you read? This is the Enterprise. We are under attack. Star Trek Monthly Monday covering every episode of the classic original TV series in randomly selected order on the second Monday of every month at two true Ready to form Voltron is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Greyskull. For the honor of Greyskull. Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's Geek Cast, coming January 1st, 2013, to
0: www.Charlie'sGeekCast.com. And we're back. And as usual, we're going to get into the segment that I love the most, getting to read the email from you wonderful, wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we're going to start out with another letter from the awesome podcaster and good friend of mine, Mr. Luke Jacanetti host of Earth Destruction Directive over the Two True Freaks Network, as well as the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. He also does a couple of vlogs, one about Hawkman and one about general comic books. Hawkman one being, beating, blah, the Hawkman one being, being Carter Hall, and the general comic one being Elgicone's Comic Bunker. Definitely go check him out. His uh, letter is titled, Everything on Planet X is Numbered. The monster's number is zero. Which is, obviously, if you know Luke, a reference to a Godzilla movie. So, he starts out, Sean, you'll have to excuse my classic Godzilla introduction. See, I got it. You know how much I love my giant monsters, and any time you talk about something being numbered zero, my mind always jumps to Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, and the introduction of King Ghidorah, or Ghidorah to that film. But before this turns into an Earth Destruction Directive episode, Let's get into the email. Hey, I wouldn't mind. I'll talk about some giant monsters. That's fun. Luke continues saying, Like I said in my previous email, I read Zero Hour off the shelf when it came out as an impressionable young teenager, and I was there for the genesis of the concept of the Zero issues, when Valiant Comics started doing them. Those early Valiant number Zeros were actually going for big bucks at the time, so they were hard to come by, but they laid out the idea of using the Zero to tell the origin of the character." This was especially true in the 90s when everyone was a mysterious, dark, and sh- when I'm sorry, when everyone had a mysterious, dark, and shadowy past. Rye Number Zero, R-A-I, I guess that's how you pronounce it, was an extremely sought-after book for a very long time because not only was it the origin of the main character, but also the entire Valiant universe. Ironically, Valiant is doing another wave of Zero issues in a few months from now, and a story is running in the excellent book Archer and Armstrong about the threat of a cult called the Void and the very concept of the number zero, which is the nothing is that is something. Gotta love mathematics being used for evil. For these DC zero issues, I always love the silver ink, which DC used on the covers. They really look sharp on the racks, and that is a cover enhancement which still holds up today. Yeah, I'll agree with Luke there. The 90s were wrought with a lot of cover enhancements, from holofoil to uh, the sort of silver inking they talked about, to trading cards, to even stuff like color forms on the issues. So, yes, this was the more, I guess you would say, subtle cover uh, promotions that they had during the 90s, but one of the ones that actually still kind of stands up today. Luke continues, I recently reread the spit-off book Fate, which I still always have a soft spot for, and the silver ink, which looks... I'm sorry, and that silver ink still looks sweet nearly 20 years after the fact. Uh, Dr. Fate, uh, I wonder who else likes Dr. F- oh, you know, Shag Matthews, the ir- irredeemable Shag, likes that. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Luke and Shag will have uh, some sort of get-together to talk about stuff like that. We'll just have to wait. In Green Lantern, we get your standard sort of zero issue, where it's a jumping-on point for new readers. Seeing as we get a chance to see Kyle's origin play out normally in the book, there's no reason to retell it here. So instead, we get the new readers up to speed with the recap and layout of the differences between the Green Lantern which they might have known, Hal, with this new one. Kyle is clearly defined in a succinct manner in this issue so that maybe readers who were turned off after Emerald Twilight, like me, have a chance to get to know him. It also spells out that his main character thesis as the last Green Lantern. A lot of folks look back on these Zero issues as gimmick, but the concept has a love strength in finding that elusive, quote-unquote, jumping-on point, which is also not a jumping-off point at the same time, like so many relaunches slash reboots slash reimagines are. Yep, I I agreed, Luke. This was a good jumping-on point, and since Kyle really wasn't around long enough for him to need a new origin story, since the origin story was essentially told with the first five issues leading up to this, it's a nice way to sort of compare and contrast the characters of the, well, not the original Green Lantern, but the then current Green Lantern of Hal Jordan with the now current Green Lantern of Kyle Rayner. So it's an interesting take on it. They didn't actually do an origin story, which is kind of what they did in the other Zero Heroes, but it was a good uh, take on the book anyway. So enjoyed that as well. The idea of Kyle creating a mecha style armored suit was something I remember getting a lot of hype back in the day. Kyle was promoted as being a hip, cool, young dude, and you don't get much hipper, cooler, or younger in the 1990s than being into anime. Hence the mecca. I specifically remember articles in Wizard talking about how Kyle wouldn't be making Giant Green Fist or anything like that. Because, you know, using Giant Green Fist for 30 years clearly didn't work for Hal Jordan. But that's another issue altogether. Yeah, I think you and I, and probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast, feel the same way about that. We understand that they wanted to make Kyle different from Hal, but in that in doing that, they kind of took all the things that Hal did and sort of belittled or mocked them, which I've always felt is a really wrong-headed way to go when you're trying to promote a new character. If you're wanting to promote someone new, work on his strengths. Don't try and tear down the person that came before you, because... In all honesty, we wouldn't have a Green Lantern if it weren't for originally Alan Scott and then eventually, you know, Hal Jordan, Guy Gardner, uh, John Stewart and the rest of the Corps. So Kyle being a new character has a lot of foundation to stand on here. Getting back to Luke's email and speaking of uh, Alan Scott, he says, "I was going to say that I disagreed about you. I disagreed with you about the Capes are not cool on Green Lantern, but you saved yourself by mentioning Alan Scott." remind me to tell you my who's your favorite green lantern alan scott story at some point uh actually luke i i think you actually mentioned that in a previous email where you were talking with someone uh who was arguing about the difference between who is your favorite green lantern and people were arguing about kyle rayner and hal jordan and you mentioned your favorite was alan scott much to the chagrin of everyone because no one really has a problem with alan scott alan scott is generally accepted as a pretty cool Green Lantern, and he doesn't seem to have the the sort of animosity that people will get between especially the Hal and Kyle or the Hal and Guy dynamic. So, I think you uh, told that before in an email, but I appreciate you trying to reiterate it here. Luke again continues, over in Guy Gardner, I have to love how Guy's theory of stopping the bad dream is by beating the crap out of someone. Yep, that's Guy. Pretty much beat it to a pulp and it's gone. Beyond that, again, like the Green Lantern issue, it's a jumping-on point for new readers who maybe had not warmed up to Guy Gardner during his stint in Green Lantern. When you promote a series of books with a common gimmick in one month, and yeah, I know I said that the, uh, I thought the Zero Hours were more than a gimmick, but you know what I mean, folks are more likely to pick up the whole set of them, and if folks, folks pick up the whole set, that's your chance to hook them. So, giving them a fun, loud, boisterous comic is certainly a valid strategy to set that hook. What's with all the fishing references? And that was Luke's comment, not mine. Luke continues saying, This issue is one of the more radical Zero issues insofar as it seriously overhauls the story for Guy Gardner going forward. Compare this to Flash Zero, which did help introduce the Speed Force, but otherwise was more of a reaffirmation of Wally West as the fastest man alive. Or the four Superman book number Zeros, which introduced Kenny Braverman, a.k.a. Conduit into Clark's personal history, but did not invalidate or change its origin in any way. Guy's new warrior persona really makes me think of the similar sort of makeover which the Marvel character War Machine got around this time. Rhodey ended up bonding with a sort of symbiotic alien Elodian armor, I- I'm sorry, let me repronounce that, Eadolan armor? Oh, I hope that's right. And got new powers and a new look, but really did not turn out that well in the long run. But a memorable period, nevertheless. The hand-morphing into a giant gun thing also makes me think of X-Factor Frenemy Random. But 90s X-Factor is a whole other ball of wax, which I don't want to get into there. Yeah, uh, the X-Books in the 90s were a a tumultuous time. You had some really impressive art uh, done by, of course, Jim Lee, who would eventually go over to the Image Comics. And you got the rise of the popularity of the anti-hero of Wolverine. And, essentially, Wolverine became the Deadpool of his time, who was essentially a rip-off of Wolverine. It's all circular, folks. Luke continues, the Dave Mustaine Doomsday people, I just have to have this image of Doomsday streaking out the lyrics to Symphony of Destruction. And I won't try to recreate them here, because no one wants to hear my singing voice, but uh, yeah, Symphony of Destruction was one of those songs I really wanted to include, and I'm going to have to remember to put that on my playlist whenever I do a next show about the character of Deventor. So be, sh- be certain I'll put some, some Megadeth in there. Luke continues again. Believe it or not, Raptor was a favorite Cobra of mine as a kid, and he's uh, referring to the character of Cardone, who looked to me like one of the characters from Stargate, and looked to Thomas as the uh, character of Raptor from G.I. Joe. He's actually Cobra's Falconer, but it gets weirder than that. He's all, because he's also a tax accountant. Really? Well, I guess, you know, Cobra would need a tax accountant to make sure that they properly paid their taxes. Makes sense. Raptor is a stereotypical 80s yuppie who took up falconry as a hobby, but was caught using his birds poaching mink on land owned by Destro. That's not a good idea. Destro hired him on in consulting, as a consulting role to use the birds of prey to attack the Joes, or... As seen his debut in the comic series, track the Joe's movements in the field. <laughs> he wears the giant bird suit to make his change make his charges feel more comfortable with him. <laughs> oh God, Cobra Commander thought Raptor was a lunatic the first time he met him, and if Cobra Commander, yes, Cobra Commander thinks you're nuts. What does that say about you? <laughs> Not very much, in my opinion. For Raptor, the whole thing was a great source of non-taxable profit margins. <laughs> Raptor was eventually one of the Cobras killed by the commander when he locked all of his enemies and Cobras he did not like in a landlock freighter and left them to die. Nice guy, that Cobra Commander. Yeah, that's that sounds about right for Cobra Commander. I was thinking about Guy Gardner's history as a teacher and a social worker during this issue. I think that the Mega Macho Guy persona is Guy's release valve. His catharsis wherein he can release everything pent up inside himself. Not unlike Luke Cage in that respect. And you have to emulate a hero. You could do a lot worse than John Wayne. Fully agree there. Ultra macho guy like Guy Gardner emulating John Wayne fits perfect with his character. Finally, Luke says, in closing, let me simply say, deeds, not words. I'm waiting for someone to break that out on an episode of Power Rangers Megaforce this season. Luke Luke, thanks for writing in, and I hope the I hope the word gets broken out on Power Rangers Megaforce. It'd be a nice sort of comedic callback. I wonder if anyone from the show remembers that. That'd be kind of cool. But that ends Luke's email, but we've got a couple extra emails this time out from Mr. Stephen J. Rogers. Not the Captain America one, the awesome one who likes to write into this podcast. The first one is entitled Batwoman, which I guess marks the fact that I made a mistake. I'll own up to here now as Luke tells me J.H. William III is the current writer slash artist of Batwoman, not Batgirl. yeah I got that wrong I forgot it was not the Barbara Gordon character in the New 52 but it was actually Batwoman. So, so will us up here and thank you Steve for pointing that out I uh, I'm glad that you're catching these things because so often I just I just run my mouth off and don't really edit it in any way shape or form uh, Steve continues saying, Well, he's been doing the character with the current Batwoman since he's been the artist on her stories, starting with great Greg Rucka in the late 2000s. Steve. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you pointing that out for me. And I actually went and checked out some of the artwork from J.H. Uh, Williams on the Batwoman book. And wow, it is a radical difference between that book and the Guy Gardner Warrior book that we covered. I mean, really... I don't know how... I mean, he must have really progressed. Or perhaps the... Wade Von Graubagger, who was the inker, just wasn't a good inker for him. But the look was just really bad in that issue. So I can only assume he's improved as an artist because the stuff that I saw in the Batwoman book was really, really good. And then our final letter for the episode is another one from Steve Rogers. Titled this time, Oh, and Brock Linser. And it says would be in his mid-teens in 1994. I'd have to see the ad to tell you whom you mixed him up for. And I guess this is the uh, WWF Raw is War ad where I tried to figure out who some of the characters are, and I just threw out the name of Brock uh, Lesnar because he sounded like a character that might be active in wrestling at this time. Obviously he wasn't, and again, Steve caught it for me. So again, I appreciate you listeners picking out you know when I when I cock up on this stuff. Because more often than not, I'm just talking right out of a orifice that I shouldn't be talking out of most of the time. But Steve finishes up, and I think you're being too harsh on the body care ads. They advertise them in jock magazines for kids of the day as well. Steve. Okay, I'll give it I'll give it a chance. Maybe I'm being harsh on the acne ads for the time, but I never read uh, jock magazines. I never read like Sports Illustrated or Sports Illustrated for Kids or anything like that, so my only reference is here, so when I see them here I kinda tend to believe that they're trying to target nerdy geeky kids who have a lot of acne. My bad. But that does it even. for emails. Thanks everyone for writing in. If you'd like to write into the show, the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Drop me a line, or you can go over to the website, just one of the guys uh, at and uh, write me an email there. Of course, uh, the only people who have been writing comments on the uh, website have been spammers for Viagra or tax services. So, there you go. But that does it again for emails. Thanks again, and let's go ahead and start up our coverage of Green Lantern number 59. Green Lantern number fifty-nine was cover dated February nineteen ninety-five, with a release date of December twentieth of nineteen ninety-four. The cover price was $1.50 dollar fifty U.S., two ten Canada, and seventy p U.K. The title was Green Christmas. Writer was Ron Mars. Penciler Daryl Banks. Inker Romeo Tangal. Colorist Steve Matson. Letterer Albert Guzman. Assistant Editor slash Elf Eddie Braganza, And Editor slash Santa Kevin Dooley. Preparing to open the door of the Titans' HQ, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is tackled by a hyperspeed-moving impulse, who taunts Kyle for not showing up for Titan training. Kyle pulls the amped-up team off of him with a ring-construct clamp, but is given a slap on the wrist from a crossbow bolt fired by Arsenal. The Titans' leader scolds Kyle for being late, but Kyle uses the excuse that it's Christmas and he had things to do. When pressed by Arsenal about what things he had to do, Kyle admits that since he's moved to New York City...
1: New York City!
0: Get a rope. ...he really doesn't have anyone to do things with. Arsenal consoles Green Lantern, saying that the Titans have always been like a family, and that he's part of the Titans now. Arsenal offers him a place to stay at Titans HQ if he needs to, and before he heads out, tells Kyle to call him Roy. And since people are offering up their secret identities, we see Damage, Grant, Impulse, Bart, and Terra... Tara, drop by to wish Kyle a slow night on monitor duty while they all go out to celebrate Christmas. Kyle grumbles about having to spend it alone, but perks up when he sees Donna Troy in the monitor room. But she too is getting ready to leave to go see her son for Christmas, and she's carrying a handful of presents. The two wish each other a very Merry Christmas, and Kyle settles in for a long night of monitor duty fashion, Kyle dozes off later in the night, only to be awakened by a ring-construct image of Alex, asking him to take her ice skating at Rockefeller Center. Shocked and angered by the ring tapping into his subconscious, Kyle decides to skip on her duty and patrol the city himself. Flying over the city that never sleeps, Kyle finds a couple of thugs accosting a Salvation Army Santa. When the punks don't take no from the faux Father Christmas, Cal knocks him over with a ring construct Rudolph, then wraps them up for the police. Noticing that it's taking more willpower to create the constructs, Cal decides to head home and recharge, after he makes sure that the Santa is okay. He gets home and recharges the ring for a certain amount of time, then heads out to take in the Wonder of Rockefeller Center at Christmas. Unfortunately, what he sees is an attack from Dr. Polaris two engage in the prerequisite fighting to fight design. Governor Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved for the issue, with Kyle zapping the magnetic marauder, knocking him out, and making him forget that he was actually Dr. Polaris. Crisis averted, Kyle accepts the adoring praise of the New Yorkers and the police, but modestly declines to make a big deal out of it. Happy that he's made a difference, Kyle heads back to Titan's HQ to finish up his Bonadour duties. Surprisingly, Kyle gets a visit from Donna, Just put her son to bed so that Santa could visit and wanted to make sure that Kyle didn't spend the holiday alone. She hands Kyle a present which he unwraps to find a branch of a plant. Somewhat clueless to the gesture, Donna tells Kyle that it's mistletoe, and suddenly Kyle gets it as Donna holds the branch over her head and the two move in close to embrace and a kiss.
1: my christmas
0: It's this point in the storyline with Kyle that things start turning around for him. We're seeing him getting used to his role as Green Lantern, and he's getting praise from the people of New York City. He's also the member of a team that has a lot of people who are in his age group, and he's starting up a stable romantic relationship with Donna Troy. I mean, he still has some of that self-doubt over the death of Alex, but he's definitely taking steps here in this book to make sure that he moves on and becomes the character that we've all grown to know and love. Jeez, I apologize if my voice sounds a little scratchy. I've had kind of a cold, so, eh, not the best voice sounding today. Sorry. But despite that fact, we're going to keep going through the book, uh, starting with the cover, which is a very 1990s version of Dr. Polaris. I mean, I remember some of the costumes up from him when he was fighting Green Lantern back in the uh, 70s and 80s, and... Yes, it's still the same purple outfit, but he has definitely got the 90s look going with weird knee braces and a really, uh, I don't know what that belt is. And, of course, shoulder pads. And his mask also looks like something that uh, came out of a Transformers comic. It's very bizarre. Oh, and the uh, fingerless gloves. But not completely fingerless. I think the middle fingers are covered, but the uh, first finger and the pinky finger are exposed. It's the 90s take. Page 1, panel 2. If you take into account that physics is in play here, when uh, Impulse decides to run into Kyle's body and tackle him at super speed, he just basically pulverized all of Kyle's internal organs and ribs. So, way to go, Impulse. You're thinking about your teammates a lot. Page 3, panel 3, is Arsenal gripes out Kyle for not showing up for Titans training. You get this panel of him just looking really angry and yelling at Kyle. You gotta kind of wonder if, you know, maybe he's off his meds or maybe he needs a fix. Oh, oh wait, oh, my bad. Page four, panel two, as Kyle is getting griped out by Arsenal, Bart is in the background behind Kyle doing the little, you know, antler thing to his head and sticking his tongue out at him going, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can understand how people at the time might think that Bart Allen was kind of a jerk whistle. Then on page five, panel three, we get the reveal that Arsenal is actually Roy Harper, the former speedy, Again, the former Green Arrow sidekick who decided that it would be a really good idea to get hopped up on the heroin, So, makes sense for the 90s. Page 6, panel 1. I love this image here as Kyle's being introduced to the uh, rest of the Titans in their normal everyday clothes and how his uh, word balloons kind of describe how he's feeling. As, as he says, uh, first, high damage, terror, and then impulse, it's all sort of icy it looks like icicles are hanging off of it it's a great way to depict the sort of mood or the sort of inflection that kyle gives to the uh words here nice artwork especially from the letterer i guess plus on these pages we're seeing banks again come more become more comfortable with his artwork as his character designs are really they're really looking a lot more realistic uh the scene where Damage and Terra are walking away, it looks very natural as uh, he's waving it by to him. And uh, There's another great panel where uh, Kyle is walking in to talk to Donna Troy where he's saying that Arsenal sort of griped him out and he's got his head sort of cocked to one side and he's got his hand up to his head like uh, he's getting ready to shoot himself in the head. It's a very natural kind of look and it's a very natural pose that uh, Banks is able to convey through the book. Uh, like I've said... Artwork is really improving over time. However, on page seven, not to fault uh, Banks here, but Donna doesn't look as, I guess, quote unquote, cute as she did in the last issue. I mean, she's really attractive, and Banks does a great job of drawing her. But I think uh, last issue with cully Hamner, he just gave her that sort of, I don't know, uh, very. I guess the best way to describe it is very anime look that made her just look kind of cute. Here she looks more realistic, but she's still incredibly attractive. So, And you can also tell the uh, feelings between her and Kyle are starting to grow a bit. Page 8, panel 5. You know, I shouldn't mention this, probably, but as uh, Donna is walking away, I, Kyle is so checking out her butt at this panel. thats uh, It's all too obvious, but wouldn't you... It's Wonder Girl. Page nine, panel five. As Kyle's sitting around doing monitor duty, he uh, constructs up some uh, ring construct. Uh, what is it? That paddle ball thing? And he's playing cards with a looks like looks like James Gardner from. Uh, oh, what is it? Maverick? Is that the one? I can't remember the movie. But then on this one panel, he's got a sketch pad of uh, things that he's drawing, and on there is Gleek, which. I don't know why that's there. Uh, A very anime image of Donna Troy in her Wonder Girl costume and an image of Arsenal with a uh, sort of Steve Martin arrow through his head saying, Why, Ollie? Why? So, obviously, Kyle's artistic side is being promoted a bit in this issue. Pages 10 and 11, this is the point where uh, the ring constructs the image of Alex, who talks to him about going to Rockefeller Center. Which is essentially done subconsciously, which I've gone back and forth or whether or not that would actually happen. In fact, the guys over at Green Lantern's Light talked about it, especially in the case of Arisia, where she supposedly subconsciously matured herself, so Hal would like her more. So I guess technically it can happen. Luckily, this time it didn't cause Kyle to change his age for any particular reason. Page 13. Since the uh, end of Hal Jordan and the rest of the Green Lantern Corps, the whole 24-hour ring charge thing has kind of gone to the wayside. So we really don't get an idea that it's how long it's going to be for Kyle to be able to maintain a charge on his ring. And basically what happens here is he just finds it more difficult to create constructs. So he just has to work harder at it. So that's basically the way he knows that his ring power is getting low. And I think this is the first time in the issues that we've actually seen that ever since they eliminated the whole 24-hour time limit thing. Which, for me, works a little better. Page 16, we get our first in-comic look at Dr. Polaris and his really new, really Transformers-like headpiece and big old shoulder pads and cape that's tacked to those shoulder pads with big gold pieces of metal and Oh, man, is it the 90s here. Wow. Page 18, panel 2. It's it's really nice that Kyle saved the uh, statue of Prometheus from falling on anyone, because who knows, Prometheus could have taken someone's arm off. Wait, what, too soon? Huh. And then on the same page, panel 5. How is Dr. Polaris affecting the Christmas tree? because he's using his magnetic powers to topple the tree on people. Trees mostly made of wood. Granted, it's probably surrounded by wires for all the lighting and everything, but is that really going to pull the tree down on people? Uh, Again, physics is kind of thrown out the window in this issue. Page 19, panel 5, after the uh, disabling of Dr. Polaris, the rescue and everything, the... uh, citizens of New York are thanking Guy or not Guy, thanking Kyle. And uh there's an elderly woman who grabs Kyle and gives him a kiss on the cheek. And I've got to kind of wonder if at the same time she just didn't try and go in there and grab Kyle's butt at the same time, just just for her own self pleasure. Then finally on page twenty two, as Kyle opens the box and looks in there seeing the twig of mistletoe. The fact that he doesn't realize what it is either to me means that he's still clinging to the memory of Alex and he's not really focusing straight or he's just kind of naive. But either way, it's a nice way of playing up the idea that Donna and he are getting interested in each other and it's nice to see that the two characters are developing this relationship and it, it doesn't seem forced. It doesn't seem that it's actually been put upon us. It seems to be growing organically, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. But that does it for my uh, notes for this issue. I'm going to take a break and get a drink, and as soon as I come back after these promos, we'll get to our coverage of Guy Gardner number 28.
1: My name is Steve Lacey, and podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me, help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is The 20 Minute Long Box. The 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-Minute Longbox on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. Hello, boys and girls. It's your
0: dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little... Browsing. Hmm. Lolcats. Lolcats. Porn. Lolcats.
1: What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley... Get our things! We're going to Georgia! <laughs> hey everyone, Michael Bailey here, asking you to check out my bi weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast. Or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains. Which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement?
0: And we are back. So let's go ahead and jump right into my coverage of Guy Gardner Warrior number twenty-eight, which was cover dated of February nineteen ninety-five, with a release date of January third, nineteen ninety-five. Cover price was $1.50 dollar fifty U.S., two ten Canada, and seventy p U.K. The title was Capital Punishment Act Two. Deck the Hood with blows of folly. Writer was Bo Smith, penciler was Mitch Byrd, inker Dan Davis, colorist Stu Schaffetz, letterer Albert Guzman, and editor Eddie Braganza. With the possibility that his mom met the same fate that Alex DeWitt did, Guy Gardner punches Major Force through the wall of his former home, and the fighting McFightenstein copyright Andrew Leyland 2011, All Rights Reserved, begins. Guy is more than easily mopping the floor with Major Force, as a news helicopter is filming the carnage from above. Meanwhile, out in space, a trio of Krag's ships are engaging a Kun battlecruiser. The Krags fire on the ship, destroying the thieves, and then head on to their destination, at the third rock from the solar belt 1254, where they will find their prey. Back on said rock, a hired hitman is carrying out his job of assassinating some poor schlub, when his job is cut short by his head being hastily removed from his body. The would-be victim looks up to thank the supposed hero, only to get his honed head placed into the mouth of Dementor. Back with Guy and Major Force, the two are tearing up the 495 in D.C., with Force throwing Guy into oncoming traffic. The two toss cars at each other like they're hot wheels, until Force launches a fuel tanker truck over here. But before the truck can become an exploding ball of flame... Green Lantern Kyle Rayner shows up on the scene and catches the tanker in a ring-construct Ikea chair. Seeing that he's way out of class now, Force picks up a passing school bus and tosses it in the air. However, Kyle is ready for the ploy and catches the bus with ease. With our heroes distracted, a quorum helicopter flies by shooting smoke grenades to allow Force to secretly retreat. Kyle and Guy swap stories about major Force in the quorum, with Guy mentioning that he found the purple pugilist sitting in the kitchen of his mom's home. Aghast, Kyle relates the story of how he found force in his kitchen as well, with his girlfriend Alex murdered and stuffed in the fridge. One shocked look later, and the two are rushing back to Guy's former home. Guy tells Kyle that he doesn't have to go through this twice as he enters his mom's kitchen. He swings open the door of the fridge to find that it's not his mother. Luckily, his mom was at her sister's for the holidays, and it was her neighbor Thelma that took the brunt of Major Force's anger. The awkwardness is interrupted by a phone call from the female quorum leader who tells Guy where Major Force is hiding. Guy looks to Kyle and says this is probably a trap, to which Kyle replies by ringing himself and Guy into the air. Cut to the quorum headquarters, where Force is being lectured about his actions, when the two heroes smash into the room and proceed to pound the stuffing out of Force. The duo ruthlessly pounds the purple and orange fiend until Guy hears that Force has had enough. Unfortunately, the statement doesn't come from Force himself, but Militia, who is back and ready to take Guy down. Truth be told, this essentially is a story that's just a big fight scene that sets up a meeting between Guy and Kyle. Yeah, they had their run-in in the Zero Hour storyline, but this is the first crossover between the two characters in the two books, and this it's the start of a really enduring friendship that sadly comes out of a shared tragedy. Or what could have been a shared tragedy if that were actually Guy's mother in the fridge. Regardless, it does show us the beginning of the relationship that Kyle and Guy will have throughout the rest of the series, and on into the, uh, well, even into the current Green Lantern books. So, nice to see it starting out here. But as for notes, we'll go ahead and start with the cover, and the cover for this issue and the Green Lantern one that we'll be covering next week are very similar in their setup. Uh, This one is depicting Guy Gardner about to kill Major Force, while Kyle leaps from behind him. On the Green Lantern cover, we get the role switched with uh, Kyle trying to kill Major Force and Guy Gardner leaping out from behind him. Both the poses are pretty similar, and it's both set in in the backdrop of the Lincoln Memorial because all of this is going on in Washington, D.C. And also kind of neat is they've also switched uh, pencilers and uh, inkers on the book. So initially, well, I guess just pencilers on the book. So in the Guy Gardner book, the penciler for the cover is actually Daryl Banks while Dan Davis is inking. And over in the Green Lantern book, it's um, Mitch Bird actually doing the cover while Romeo and Tangal does the inking. So it's a nice crossover, not only between the characters, but also between the artists. And both of the covers are really dynamic in their own aspects, in their own rights. And since this is basically just a big fight scene i could describe all the panels to you but i'm just going to pick out certain ones that kind of interest me first of all we got page five panel one where major force uh comments on how powerful this guy is which is something you'll be hearing a lot from this book including uh, a comment of uh, how powerful guy is for me certain last son of krypton we'll be getting to that in a couple of issues Page 7, panels 3 through 7, we get the idea that the Krags warships sent out by the Tormox are finally getting closer to Earth, so all subplots accounted for right there. And the same goes for page 8, where we get to know what uh, Domeni... Nice. Page 10, we get the idea that Bo Smith, and in the sense Guy Gardner is being written by Bo Smith doesn't have much of a liking for foreign cars as one of the cars that hits guys he's fighting major forces what he determines a rice burner thus saying that if it was actually Detroit steel it might have hurt so there you go uh, dislike for foreign cars so at least he's at least he's being a patriotic American and uh, promoting the uh, purchase of American made cars even though most of them are made in Mexico now so then on the same page, panel 8, I was kind of wondering, when did Major Force get the ability to fly? But then I realized he's essentially just a sort of evil version of Captain Adam, so I guess that would make sense that he could fly. So, there you go. Page 13, I've mentioned this before in the comics, but Bo Smith really does write some awesome one-liners and some great quippage. Uh, On here, on this page, in the first couple of panels, you get Guy coming up to Major Force saying, You pukehead, look at all the damage you're causing. And Major Force says, Good. Damage is my middle name. Guy jumps down on the next panel and says, That's got to be the dumbest thing I've I've ever heard, even from you. And then on the next panel, Major Force picks up a car and he says, Time for the traffic report. Highway traffic is piled up and piled on as he Throws the car on a guy. So, I, I'm enjoying the equipage. It's very macho and very, well, obviously very manly. And I can actually feel hair growing on my body as I read it. So there you go. Page sixteen, pen one. I've uh, mentioned that I like this art style uh, every once in a while in the comics. And what we what we have here is a nice panel of both guy and Kyle in silhouette, with only their mask, Kyle's crab mask. And guy's red and yellow tattoos showing. It's a nice way to distinguish the characters in silhouette by uh, accentuating their either their markings or their their signature. I guess their signature designs that call them out as a hero. So I, I like the look here. Really good. Page seventeen, the middle panels where uh, Guy and Kyle are talking about uh, the whole refrigerator thing and it's great because the artwork transitions in this panel between Guy and Kyle, and uh, once Kyle tells Guy that he found Alex dead in the refrigerator, Guy goes from this look of just hard-ass hero to completely concerned son in the matter of two panels, and it's really great artwork because it looks like, you know, guy is completely broke up over this if his mom is dead this is really concerning him so again really good artwork and good facial expressions here by Mitch Bird pages 18 and 19 again like in the uh, Green Lantern issue you don't see the carnage of what's going on in the refrigerator so it's left to your mind what it is but you've got to imagine that it's pretty horrific because on page 18 it looks like Kyle's bending over to throw up. So, again, that's it's good that they're not showing you it. Uh, it's always best when it's left to your mind because that always gives you that image of even more horrible things have happened. Then on page 19, panel 8, I've got to wonder why the female corps member is calling Guy. Is she feeling guilty about all this going on, or is this part of the trap? I guess we'll have to find out in subsequent issues, though. And then finally, of course, to end the issue, on page 22, we get the return of Melissa. Oh, I'm sorry. Militia. Guys, erstwhile brother who's trying to kill him. Nice. Oh, and he's still got those giant tubes growing up at his back. Wonderful. I love it. But that does it for notes. Let's go ahead and take a look at the ads of the issue, and we'll get through that right now. Starting with the inside cover, we've got um, a video game, which I guess is kind of akin to one of those Final Fantasy games. It's by Taito, or Taitio, and it's called Lufia and the Fortress of Doom. Unfortunately, I've never heard of this game, so obviously it's not the role-playing giant that Final Fantasy actually came out to be. So, sorry, Lufia. You sounded too much like a sponge that you used to bathe yourself with. Then a few pages in, we get this sort of very, uh, well, it's a bunch of calligraphy on a very uh, archaic uh, sort of papyrus-type paper. It's an World's tale. And it says, draw close, and know ye that in the days of yore, a mighty hero did walk this land. A veritable Superman was Cal. To good men, he was humble and kind. His This is a legend of fire and iron, of friendship and romance, of love and ultimately death this is the timeless legacy or timeless legend of Cal. And I'm guessing this is the Elseworlds story of uh, Cal, written by Dave Gibbons and illustrated by the uh, wonderful artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. Uh, I just remember hearing on Crisis to the Crisis, them covering the first Elseworlds novel, Speeding Bullets, and they mentioned that uh, Cal was probably one of their favorite ones, so I can't wait to listen to what they have to say, actually, about the Cal story. Next page, we get a house ad, which actually has the artwork for the uh, Green Lantern issue done by uh, Dan Davis and Romeo Tangal that I was talking about earlier. And it says, who want, who gets to kill Major Force? Capital Punishment, a three-part story of vengeance in Guy Gardner Warrior, number 27 and 28, and Green Lantern, number 60. So, next week, we'll find out what happens to Major Force, and whether or not it's Guy or Kyle that gets to off him. But he'll die. Oh, yeah, I mean, he will. I mean, really, he'll be dead, and that'll be it. He won't come back at all. Promise. Then a few more pages in, we get suffering, laughing, working, killing, dying. An ordinary, the Ordinary People of Gotham City and the Batman. It's Gotham Knights 2, written by, uh, I guess, Michael Ostrander, um, Mitchell, and I guess dick giordano i don't know who the mitchell is but uh it's a nice image of uh batman sort of overlooking a uh, carnival where people are running from it in fear as it uh, burns up so i uh, never read the gotham knights books so maybe they were good i don't really know and then again wow we've got a lot of house heads house ads this time out uh next one is five villains a kid with an attitude and a suicide mission it's watery grave and superboy number 13 and it's the uh it's the leather jacketed uh glasses wearing 90 superboy and along it looks like maybe dolphin uh deadshot captain boomerang and i don't know who the guy in the background is he's a redheaded guy with longer hair and he's got a shoulder cannon so no idea oh and there's some uh some sort of aquaman sort of fish person in front I need to learn up. I need to listen to more Who's Who. Come on, uh, Shag, Rob, get to more Who's Who so I can figure out who these characters are. And again, a few more pages in, we get Lightning Strikes Monthly, beginning in January. We've got Jerry Ordway doing Power of Shazam, which I've heard was a, a good series of issues. Uh, anything pretty much done by Jerry Ordway, I think, would be well worth a read. So, And it's good-looking artwork here as well, so power of Shazam, it's nice to see the character getting his own his own comic. And then right after that, we get Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night's in. Now see what might have been. And we get the Batman Mightfall. M-I-T-E-F-A-L-L It's uh, done by Alan Grant with art by Kevin O'Neill and it's basically the story of what would happen if Batmite went through the entire Nightfall and Night's End and Night's Quest thing. So, interesting. Maybe. Obviously out of continuity, but could be fun. The subscription page has a really nice image of, uh, looks like a Bogdanov Superman with his fists uh, headed out towards the uh, viewer. Really good look here, and against the longer-haired Superman at the time, so enjoy that. The DC Universe page has basically a, giant messy table full of artwork and stuff, which I guess is uh, Frank Pitteris' desk uh, before he is doing his Showcase 95 special. So very simple uh, DC uh, Showcase or DC Universe page. Pretty much easy to get done. The back inside cover is another ad for claricel pads, so if you've got acne, claricel will clear it up. And finally, the outside cover is, again, for Nerf Max Force guns, which has the Gatling gun and the uh, cannons and such stuff like that. So it's the beginning of the sort of Nerf laser tag type era. So fun stuff all around. But that does it for the ads. I might as well mention that this time out, the Green Lantern book actually did have a reprint. It was reprinted in the uh, compilation Green Lantern Baptism Fire, which compiled some of the issues of Green Lantern where he essentially was growing as a character and met with other heroes of the DC Universe. Starting out with this one, where he meets with the Titans, eventually moving on to The Flash and other characters in the DC Universe. Gardner, again, was not reprinted in any way, shape, or form. Which, again, disappoints the heck out of me. But that does it for me this time. I hope you guys come back next week, because we're going to be finishing up the Capital Punishment storyline in Green Lantern Book, where we figure out whether it's going to be Guy or Kyle who decides to take the plunge and off this batty major force. Who do you think it'll be? I'm pretty certain you know. And also, we're going to get to an epic opening of the new Warrior's Restaurant in Guy Gardner 2099. And possibly, if I can work things out, we might have a certain guest host coming on. So you won't have to listen to my horrible voice. It'll be coupled with someone who's got a much better voice and who's much more knowledgeable about that character of Geico. He's awesome. So if that isn't a good enough tease to get you to come back next time, I don't know what is. So hopefully we'll see you all next week at Just One of the Guys. And until then, take care, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted by their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot Libsyn, spell L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Christmas, Sarajevo 1224, off their album Christmas Eve and Other Stories. If you'd like to buy this album or download the song, one of the best places to go to do that would be Amazon.com. They've got tons of audio CDs in stock and tons of mp3 downloads for you to get. And if you decide to go to Amazon.com, the best way to do it would be to go to 2 and click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page. When you get to 2TrueFreaks and click on the Amazon banner, you're transported to Amazon where you can buy the song or download the song for your own listening pleasure. When you buy something through the link at 2 amount of, a small amount of money goes back to 2TrueFreaks in order to help them pay for the site, which is always beneficial because 2 True freaks is totally awesome.